Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Quit Your Day Job. I am Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. Am I wearing sweatpants while I record this? You will never know. This podcast is all about dream jobs, the ones you wished you had when you were a kid and the ones you pin up on your vision board. I decided to chase after my dream jobs in 2020 by taking unpaid internships at four of them. I quit my job as CEO of a philanthropy consulting business to try my hand working on Broadway, in fitness, as an art dealer, and at a hotel. And then I wrote a book about my experience, which will be out in 2023. I am psyched to share my story with you, but in the meantime, I'm bringing you a few others, real people who work really cool jobs. So before you quit your day job to go be a painter or an actress or a life coach, listen in and see what it's really like behind the scenes. everybody and welcome to Quit Your Day Job. Today we are really lucky to have joining us Alfonsina Peñalosa. Alfonsina is the Director of Programs at CoImpact, a collaborative funder that raises and deploys money to change systems around the world. Alfonsina has been a grant maker for nearly a decade, working at the Hewlett Foundation prior to joining CoImpact, where she created a $25 million initiative to support women's funds in the global south. She has also worked extensively in Mexico for many years in the policy space. She created a think tank and worked with the Ministry of Public Administration. Alfonsina has a master's degree from the London School of Economics, which is where we met. Yes, I don't know anything about economics, but I do have a master's degree from there. She was born and raised in Mexico, and she loves to travel, although at the moment you can find her in New York City. So Alfonsina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Alicia. And I'm glad that you added that part, the most important part of the bio, which is that we are friends and we've known each other for now an undisclosed long amount of years. Exactly. <laughs> we, we can't, we can't, uh, we were just talking before we started recording about how the year 2000 seems like it was not very far away. And so it's just best not to keep count anymore because it just yeah. freaks you out. <laughs> it does. But it suffice to say that we've known each other for a long time and have been yeah, just in touch and, and trying to keep up with each other over very different stages of life, I guess. Indeed. And friends, lucky me, lucky me. And we studied together and then we sort of ended up in the same fields, which meant that we've had professional reasons to connect too. And I've just totally been cheating on this podcast because almost everybody I've interviewed has been somebody that I'm friends with. And I'm just uh, fortunate to have so many extremely cool friends working cool jobs. So Alfonsina is no exception. So now you will be familiar with what's coming next. Uh, this is a lightning round. So five quick questions. Say whatever comes to your mind. Just a little, a little warm up before we get into the main event. So question Love number it, one. Love it, and I'm terrified. Yes, don't be afraid. They're all <laughs> incredibly personal and very detailed. No, <laughs> of course. Uh, all right. Question one: As a world traveler, what is the next stop on your travel itinerary? That's an easy one. Fortaleza in Brazil, uh, leaving tomorrow. 
And you going for work or play or both? Work, work, doing site visits for two amazing organizations that I work with. That's awesome. Okay, yeah. see, that was easy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a piece of cake. This one, maybe you'll find more challenging. Number two, what is the most underrated Mexican food? Oh, I'm going to go for a very simple, an avocado taco. Mm. Just spread avocado on a warm tortilla, a little bit of salt. It's the simplest, most delicious treat you can have. That sounds great. I am dreaming constantly of good Mexican food. I have not found any here in Edinburgh yet. So I guess I'm just going to have to go to Mexico and probably find some there. (laughs) We'll we'll do a gastronomic tour, which is what I always do. Amazing. All right. You're a new-ish New Yorker. Not that new, I suppose, anymore. But what do you think is the best thing about New York and the worst thing about New York? The best thing about New York, I think, is how how international it is. There's just, you can hear 20 different languages, you know, walking just five blocks. There's something for, I think almost literally everyone. I mean, you could be into some very obscure niche thing in your eighties and there's probably a club that runs it in New York. (laughs) And I think that's amazing. So there's a lot of sort of opportunity and anonymity, which I love in the city. The worst thing about New York, I, I mean, nothing that no other city has, I think. I just... You know, it's a big city. It's very fast paced and some people don't like it. But I think it's I think it. the things that some people criticize about New York, I think, are just because you might not like the style of that particular of a city like that. But I don't think it's necessarily particular to New York. The rats were probably something that I would say. That's exactly what I was going to say. One of the worst. (laughs) I went from living in San Francisco where I would like have coyotes and, you know, like deer and I don't know, like watching you know the 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 golden gate bridge at sunset and then lived in new york and like a brat crossed the street and i was like yeah not the type of not nature and fauna that i was used to in san francisco definitely not when i lived in new york many years ago i once saw a rat crawl out of the grate onto the street and cross an avenue but it looked both ways before it crossed the yep. avenue and i just thought they're going to outlive us all, really. <laughs> yeah, this has happened to me. I've seen them use the crossroads. Like, they cross anywhere. They they use the crosswalk to oh to cross the streets, which is insane. Yeah, they New will outlive are, us all for they're sure. They're highly evolved for sure. Okay, number four. When you were a kid, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Depends on the stage of my infancy. The classical sort of ballerina stage definitely happened, and I did ballet for many years. I wanted to be a cashier at some point. I very belatedly in my life discovered that I have ASMR and to this day tapping, the tapping of keys, especially if you have long nails, Mm -hmm. gives me this like amazing relaxed feeling. And I sometimes work with that as in the background. It's super weird, but (laughs) I would love to just go with my like mom to the supermarket and just stand in the, in the checkout line, just listen to the tapping. And then a little bit later was obsessed and I mean, obsessed. I read every single book of Ab- Agatha Christie and Nancy Drew. So a detective was probably in the list as well. Awesome. You could still yeah. be a detective, actually, I think, on the side. I know. I don't think it'll be exactly the the, the sophisticated and <laughs> um, naive stories of Nancy Drew and Agatha Christie, though. But No, probably not. Yeah, I guess it's still a possibility. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? All right. Well, final question. You have a million dollars of your own money to give away right now. No strings attached. Where do you put it? Oh, super easy. A women's fund. Anyone in particular? I, I mean, 
I am Mexican, so there is a part of me that would like to give it to the uh, to the Mex. There's only one Mexican women's fund, but they thankfully just got a really big gift from Mackenzie Scott. I don't think I can match her funds, so they might be best. They, they <laughs> might be best used somewhere else. I don't know. It's a tricky one. Yeah, I. That's pretty. Well, some women's fund yeah. for sure. Okay, and can you just define for people that may be listening and not know what a women's fund is? Sure. So they are funders. And I think that's an important distinction. And what makes them very particular is what they do is support women's organizations and activists at different, they can be in country or regional or global. And they're really good at funding feminist movements because they basically fund them where they are. So instead of like typical funders who have a, you know, focus on like education or sexual reproductive rights, and they have a particular strategy in terms of how to fund that. They just fund movements and they make sure that that women's rights organizations and feminist activists are supported and have funds and can, you know, be ready to either defend our rights or ask ask for more. And um, and I think that's the best way to support uh, feminist movements. And there are some amazing women's funds around the world. And I think uh, when this airs, I'll link to some resources for people that are more interesting. But congratulations, you survived the lightning round. It was easy, Thank right? You. Yeah, it was. And fun. You make, it, you make it easy and fun. Well, thanks. And it's no wonder that you are a pro at doing the lightning round because we've done one together before. You have been on another podcast with me, a podcast called What Donors Want that we've been doing for many years at the company that I used to be CEO of and I'm currently chair of. But this podcast is much more about you and your relationship to your job rather than your organization and kind of what you do. And I think... There's a huge interest in lots of different spaces about philanthropy and people that are kind of curious about it. They might have uh, an image of like, uh, you know, an old industrialist, like in a top hat, kind of like the Monopoly man, like throwing bags of money at people. But it's been in the news more. People like Mackenzie Scott have had a lot to do with that. And so it's just a career that I think people want to know a lot about. And so can you start by explaining to someone who maybe knows nothing about philanthropy is still thinking very Monopoly? man, what you do for a living. Sure. And, you know, some people are not, I mean, I don't think it's completely wrong to think about the monopoly man. And we can talk <laughs> about that later, but, you know, it, I think it is still a problem in the field. But if I had to describe my work in the most sort of basic possible way is I am a money pusher. I take money from rich, generous people who want to invested in, in my case, in gender equality. And I find amazing organizations to uh, make good use of that money and support the work that they do. And essentially, that's my job. Of course, it gets a little bit more complicated in terms of picking the organizations. And that's part of what makes philanthropy, I think, a little bit obscure, quote unquote. But in essence, we just move money. Amazing. And I think I think that's actually, that is also what a lot of people think about the job, although there are definitely some complicated parts to it. Uh, but you, you've worked in a lot of different spaces. Tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get into this very enviable seat of being a professional money pusher? I wish I had a better answer to this one. You know, I think one of the worst questions in an interview you can ask me is where you'll see myself and where I'll see myself in five or 10 years. Unlike many people, I never have had this like clear plan of where I wanted to land professionally. I think it's been a combination of, of serendipity and, and luck just being in the right place in the right time and some intuition in there. I won't give all the credit to the goddesses. I have been quite consistent in working in social justice issues 
And I think post-college, it sort of got narrowed into gender justice and finding that niche for me then, I think it's been a little bit of a combination of trial and error. Uh, I started out my professional career in a consultancy, then I migrated into think tanks, then uh, I worked for about two years in the Mexican government, then went back to civil society and then ended up in philanthropy, which is sort of the sector that I've been at for the past 10 years. So the only sector I haven't tried out is the private sector, but it hasn't been because I have not wanted to, you know, and again, you know, it's not like I thought, well, you know, now I want to try the public sector and now I want to try philanthropy. It's been a little bit of, as probably most people have experienced, once you think you're sort of ready to move on and then you put out sort of the feelers, you figure out kind of what you want to do. And then it's also a combination of who you know and what opens up at the moment that you're looking for a job. And so that's the serendipity part of it. Yeah. But for me, always having um, a very clear angle and, and lens of being able to do something around gender work has been important. I think for me, one of the interesting pieces of thinking about this podcast was that I've never actually worked in a feminist organization. Mm-hmm. And so I've dedicated my life to working on gender issues for the past 20 years or so. And I haven't worked in the gender sort of in, in a specific feminist organization. And I think part of that has evolved into what I think is my part of my skill sets, which is I'm I'm good at being sort of the insider in organizations that are not feminist. And, yeah. I, and I think I enjoy that. There's part of a challenge of, of figuring out, like, how do I make this more feminist or how do I move this agenda to become more towards gender equality? And there's something about that, which I also think is nice to be able to work across sort of issues So if I worked in a specific place that was just about one particular issue, it might be less interesting to me than being able to connect agendas in in different organizations and work. That's always the thing I loved about studying gender, actually, which was that I could take any class as long as it had to do with gender. And so it was good for a person like me who didn't like to settle on one thing. I was like, oh, I want to learn about women in art and women in anthropology and women in this. But actually, it provides a huge amount of diversity in your work, I think, by keeping that lens on things. And then there's loads of different things you can do. But actually, the job that you do is like not a, a job. 20 years ago, really. I mean, you know, if you were definitely not sitting, listening to the cashier and thinking, well, if it doesn't work out for me to come to the supermarket, I think I want to go be a feminist philanthropist. You know, have you, you know, you you make it sound like you kind of found these opportunities, but you have worked really, really hard to get to where you are. Coming out of graduate school, we got degrees in gender. There was no roadmap. I would say it's fair to say I think most of our classmates were either going to go into um, academia, so study for a PhD or become a professor. So tell me about that first kind of jump when you left school, you have this degree in gender, you're looking at the career space and you're like, what do I do now? (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah. Yeah. Such a good question. I think for me, the first challenge was we, we were both in London. I wanted to stay in London and, you know, immigration issues didn't make it easy. That was for, for me, that was the first challenge. We're like, oh, I'd love to stay here. This is not an option. So I had to go back home. And, you know, if our jobs weren't a job back then, even less so in Mexico City, you know, mm-hmm. gender wasn't yet even mainstream. There wasn't, you know, there, there, there was very little to work on. So I got, I got back home and I went back into government for some, for a brief amount of time. And I think what, there were two things that I think led me to that decision. One was I'm, I'm still, I'm very interested in public policy. I do think that government is a intriguing and very complicated beast, but that has a lot of potential and resources and scale and figuring out how to make it work better to me was really interesting and compelling. Second of all, I've been very lucky to have really good bosses who more than anything, trust me and give me a lot of autonomy to Mm -hmm. do things that I sort of find interesting that might not be part of my job description. And so part of that first step involved trying to figure out in a space where there wasn't really much around gender. And I could you not, I mean, I think they literally thought that gender was like, let's do Let's give out carnations to all the women in the public sector on Mother's Day. And then International Women's Day, they would have like a breakfast for all the women who, by the way, because it was the public sector, most of them were in sort of the lower echelons of the of the organization. So it was a lot of secretaries and executive assistants. And so figuring out how to actually use that autonomy and that trust that I had to creatively find things that that, that I could do. And that then led into... I think getting some confidence for me about like, okay, there are things that I can do and I can make up things. And if they're well-structured and well-justified and supported by bosses, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that I could do. So my next job in the think tank was, I basically pitched, it was a new think tank that was being set up. And I basically pitched and I said, there's no think tank that has gender equality on its agenda. And it's a great niche. And that's something that could distinguish one think tank from the next. There's so many now. And of course, there's tons of issues that you know require, I think, a lot of think tanks. And think tanks are, I think, a very helpful type of organization because you have activists and you have researchers, but then somebody has to translate that into public policy. And you know very well, as much as I do, particularly feminist theory is a mouthful. I tried to reread my thesis the other day. It is... <laughs> so complicated unnecessarily and I remember I made an effort to use like the most complicated words to you know to to, to boost our scores boost I our was, scores yeah, exactly <laughs> to justify that I was a true feminist who understood you know feminist theory but you have to translate that into something that politicians and 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 uh, decision makers can use so I thought it was a really a good pitch to say like, okay, this is something that we could do and that could distinguish this think tank from others. That didn't work out partially because I think that one of the challenges that when you're a feminist, fill in the blank, whatever it is, philanthropist, think tanker, decision maker, it's a lot of hitting up against walls and and people might say yes, but then when the rubber hits the road and when 
they see that there's some big changes that need to be made or feathers that are ruffled, you know, it doesn't land as um, smoothly. So I was looking for a job and a friend of mine who he was a funder, he still is. And I had asked him for funding in the think tank that I was in. He didn't give me any funding, but he did say, listen, the Hewlett Foundation is looking for somebody to join. And it was, again, not a feminist funder. The program was Transparency and Accountability, which is not feminist. But I applied sort of the same logic. I got there and I said, listen, I think there's there's a, as you very well said, you know, there's, you can apply women to any topic because we are in everything. And so I said, there's no lens to transparency and accountability. And it's both a topic that I think could be use a gender lens and also a topic that feminist organizations can use to sort of boost their advocacy skills. And so that's what I did. And I had, again, an amazing boss who was very supportive and gave me a lot of autonomy. And I basically rebuilt the strategy along with colleagues of mine with a feminist lens. And so when you start adding all of those up, then it turned out that I've been, you know, I had 15 years of experience of of applying a gender lens to either public policy or feminist funding or public policy analysis in the think tanks. And so, you know, when I look back now, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's what the same thing happens as we were discussing earlier, like when I think about 2000s and I'm like, it can't be that it's been 20 years ago. When I look now at job descriptions and they ask for 15 years of experience, I immediately think I can't apply to that. And then I realize, oh, wait, no, yes, I do have. Actually, wait, I do have that experience. experience. But it, it's been built over the years without, and again, you know, yes, with a lot of work, of course, but being applied I guess more intuitively is what I'm trying to say. Like yeah. it hasn't been a, it hasn't been like a, from the outset, it wasn't a goal that I had thought of. Right. Like I am going to be the feminist in the room and every place I'm at, I, I just, it just sort of happened. And I happened to have those skills. And I think what graduate school gave me very helpfully before that, I was just somebody who was very angry at injustices. <laughs> I think after graduate theory, I was like, okay, I'm angry, but now I have really good arguments for like why that economic argument fails or why you think that women are naturally that way when I can give you, you know, 20 examples and 20 articles to read about how that actually is not true and counter examples. And I can now, for the work that I do, actually use that to persuade people that there are other ways of looking at the world and other ways of solving some of the issues that traditional philanthropy, you know, hasn't solved it yet. And I think it's, yeah, it's just a really interesting tool to experiment. Yeah. And you've got all those big words that you know that you can also use, which is pretty great. Exactly. Exactly. I, I kid you not. I, I had a, a little notebook throughout graduate school where I would write down words that I would be like, oh, problematizing, <laughs> deconstructing. Oh my God. And all I had those are probably tropes, not real words. Tropes. <laughs> tropes. I remember that being, it's somewhere here. I, we could, I, I'll pull it oh up God, and send so you um, some of those words. Because I remember just seeing like, that sounds really smart. Just writing these words down. Top tip from Alfonsina Peñalosa. Write down words you think are good and use them later. I actually think that's a great thing. They make kids do that in school. So would you say that of all the pieces of your job, uh, the trade-off that you talked about, that making decisions about who's going to get money and who's not, is that the most difficult part? Is it probably also kind of the best part because you get to see these organizations get this incredible funding? Like how do you kind of hold space for that decision-making piece of your job, knowing that there's a lot of power in your hands? Uh, I don't know if it's the best or the worst. I think the best is seeing the work and learning from the organizations that I've become a better feminist because of that, from 
sitting down with folks who know way more than I do, especially about that particular topic and especially wherever it is that they're working and just take it all in like a sponge and or reading about really interesting things that are different and that nobody's funding that I know because I've seen this in the past that when you fund it, then you diminish the risk for other funders. And so Mm -hmm. you can sort of fund a lot of things that then they can leverage more funding for that are that are new and, and risky but fascinating and that's really compelling and especially the the proposal phase because that combines I think a little bit of background that is where I can use some of those analytical tools that then I don't necessarily need when I'm seeing the work you know play out or on hand mm-hmm. the worst thing I mean definitely the, the the power thing is is complicated but I think if I had to think about the worst thing about my job, I think it's more around the admin tasks that come with. So it's like any other job, um, for me at least. Yeah. Um, anything that involves an Excel sheet is a nightmare for me. <laughs> and I know that I'm probably answering something less sophisticated than what you were looking for. That is one of the things that I think is is the worst part of my job. I think the other one is the worst part of philanthropy more at large, especially if you're a feminist philanthropist, a philanthropist is just... Like, I, I don't understand, this is probably also with just feminists in, in general, like, I just don't understand why this is still an issue. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand why people are not funding feminist organizations. It, 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 there is no part of, of the process where I, don't, where I understand why they are underfunded other than patriarchy, right? And right. so there's, you know, you're just left with that, like, massive, unhelpful, like, diagnosis. <laughs> And that becomes very frustrating because, and of course, it's also an interesting challenge to then figure out, okay, like, how do we break that off into pieces and how can I be strategic about changing that? But, right. you know, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very daunting issue. And I think that just like anybody who works on any social issue in general, there's just so complicated and massive issues that if you, if you think about that, then, you know, there's very little incentive to, to work every day because you think there's, they're insurmountable, but they actually aren't. And I think, Going back to your question about what makes it easy is also just finding allies and people that you can talk with, including yourself, yeah. you know, j- j- just figuring out like who can I, finding your tribe and then figuring out how to work with them. So true. This may be a really obvious answer for you, but I think it's an important question to ask anyway, because I hear, especially now with the book and all the writing and stuff, I speak to a lot of people, particularly women who are seeking purpose in their work in a way that they might not have before. Do you feel like you found purpose in your work? Oh, absolutely. As I, I said, I think it's been a constant in whatever job I've had. I've, I've always focused on social issues. I think what graduate school did for me was, again, sort of given me just much more helpful tools to channel that anger that I had. And so after graduate school, I was like, all right, clearly that is, this is my purpose. And now I know how to go about this other than screaming at people from, you know, for, for just like, no, this is horrible. <laughs> like not helpful. Right. And absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's the only thing that keeps me going sometimes. The fact that I know that this is still an issue and that I can, I can do something about it. I've questioned many times, especially, you know, when you work in civil society, until I moved to the U.S., I never had benefits. I A bonus was not even a word. It still isn't, by the way. But um, th- these things that my friends had when they were growing professionally, you know, that they were they were able to put down payments on apartments, that was not, it never has been an option for me hmm. um, because it's a sector that is underfunded. And so they don't have the resources. And 
the only thing that has kept me going amongst other things is just me. I know that this is what I like to do and I'm good at it. If I had other jobs, I may have, you know, more financial security and other, but I wouldn't have that purpose. It just wouldn't fulfill me. And mm-hmm. I, I, I have absolute clarity about that. And my friends have reminded me about this when I, you know, cry about financial woes and they're like, <laughs> you chose this, remember? And I was like, yes, I know, I know, I know. So yeah, it definitely has given me purpose and I think I'm good at it too. And that's also really important. I agree with that. The last question I like to ask everybody on the podcast is what advice would you give to somebody of any age who is maybe looking to get into philanthropy or it could even be nonprofit work? One of the things that amazes me looking at the time when we finished graduate school and now is that uh, you can go get degrees in philanthropy, you can study it, you can take all kinds of courses, um, whereas those weren't really options. But I think that that's not the only way in. What advice would you give to people who are looking at you and thinking, this job sounds amazing, I want that purpose and a place to channel all my anger, what do I do next? First, I would say if you think that you want to be an activist or do advocacy in a particular sector, I would separate that from philanthropy. And I'll tell you why, because I think that the people who do that do not make good philanthropists Mm -hmm. and vice versa. I think that one of the common mistakes in philanthropy is that people, program officers or directors get too involved in the work that organizations that they're supporting do to the point where because of the power differential, then whatever you say is a suggestion becomes a directive, right? right? And usually you don't have the context, you don't have the expertise. And so your point of view is different. It's valid. It's a bird's eye view. You can see other things that somebody who's on the field doesn't, but it's usually not a good combo to be, to want to be hands-on if you are working in philanthropy. So my first tip would be if you think that you want to, you know, participate in protests or go to Congress or write up, you know, a do that. Mm-hmm. Don't join philanthropy. There's yeah. advocacy to be done in philanthropy, no doubt. So if you want to do that but for philanthropy, then that's another avenue. But I think uh, uh, somebody who's good at philanthropy finds great organizations. You can understand what they do and then you give them the money. It's a little bit hands off. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second tip I would give, and this is especially, I think, relevant for women, is you need to be comfortable with power and money. And I don't say this lightly because it is still a lot of women, I think, work in philanthropy, but a lot of the money is held by men. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the decisions higher up are made by white men, particularly. And you just need to be comf- need to know that these are the environments that you'll be working in. And you give money. You receive a lot of money and you give away money. And in my experience, and this has... Uh, the reason why I say with women is I, I, there's been studies for fundraising. You probably know this much better than I do that specifically women have a lot of difficulties in like asking for raises or, you know, making fundraising right. asks, asks that are mm-hmm. ambitious. And and the same thing goes when you're in philanthropy. You just need to be more comfortable in that realm because that is quite literally what you do. Um, you, you push money. And so you need to be comfortable with that. Um, and I think what that means as well is you need to be aware that that power dynamic exists and there's no way of eliminating it, but you Mm -hmm. can diminish it for sure. And so anybody who has tendencies to, for power grabs, philanthropy is probably not a good place to work those out because it's very, it's very tempting almost by nature to, to fall into those traps because of the inherent power dynamic that there is. I think 
what else would I say? I mean, talk to people who are in philanthropy. And I think that if there's a particular topic that you're interested in, there are funders who specialize in different funding areas. I think if you have a, a particular interest in one area, just talk to people who do. I've, I've been approached by folks who have, and I've talked to many people who have been in philanthropy longer than I have. And I think it's very helpful to get a, a sense of that. And also, I finally, I will say, it is an incredibly heterogeneous space. There's a famous saying that when you know one funder, you just know one funder. Like it is mm. not, in my case, I worked in the Hewlett Foundation. It is not representative of philanthropy. Right. And so it's really difficult to get a sense from just one funder of what the space looks like. So yeah, it's a it's a very weird world is all I'll say. So you, I guess <laughs> you also have to be okay with weird because it's very, it's not like other jobs where there's like a handbook and and there's training, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit of an art less than a science. And so I think that you also have to, in my case, I, it's been very helpful also to just trust my gut. Mm. And so for people who, who, who are not good at that, and for people who need like, here's a structure and here's the manual and here's how you do, you know, job in philanthropy, probably not a good fit either. Um, I don't know if I'm saying helpful things, it's an it's amazing really helpful. world, but I think you, yeah, it's because it's so, unknown. As you said, there's never occurred to me that this was a job. And even in Mexico, when I was in civil society and knew that there were funders, I didn't even know how to get in. Mm. Um, So I think there's, as with any job, you know, also making relations, um, just trying to do networking and get to know people in the field to both know what the job entails and kind of get a sense of whether or not this is something you would enjoy. And then eventually, as with any other space, you know, when there are openings, they are the ones who let you know. That's how I got in. Yeah. By pure chance. Network. And that's why you're here and not tapping away at the cash register, but could, <laughs> could, do, it, could do it on the side. Alfonsina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, where can people hear or learn more about you and what you do online? I should get better at this, but um, I uh, on Twitter at Alfon P, A-L-F-O-N-P, and also LinkedIn, which I should also check more often, but I try to post things about work there, but mostly Twitter, I think. Amazing. Alfonsina, thank you. Have a great rest of the day. Have a great trip to Brazil, and thanks for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me, Alicia. Thank you so much for listening to Quit Your Day Job. We are a Zcast production and want to send huge thanks to the whole Zibby Books team for their support. Find me on Instagram at Alicia F. Miranda. I would love to hear what you thought about the episode, future jobs you want me to profile, or the burning questions you think I should ask my upcoming guests. And if you decide to quit your day job, let me know. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.